Well, this morning we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to finish out Exodus chapter 20. Uh, we're going to, um, we actually, uh, you might not remember, but uh, when we covered the first part of Exodus 20, we actually looped into that uh, a portion of scripture that's at the tail end of the Ten Commandments in verses 18 through 21. Um, so we're actually going to focus in today on 22 through the end of the verse 22 through the end of the chapter. You know, when we think of uh, when we think of access to God, there are kind of um, certainly a, at least a couple of different ways we can think about that. Um, you know, one is you know that. Uh, to have a picture of God that is uh, where we recognize His holiness, His, that He is different than us. And, and we have this uh, picture that, that sort of God is unapproachable. And um, because of Christ, uh, that veil that's, that, that keeps us away from, from accessing God has been torn in two. Um, but there's another, uh, and, and so it's important for us to, while we recognize the holiness of God, while we recognize that He is different than us, that we are not worthy of Him, He has also given us direct access to Himself. But there's another perspective where we can so, uh, so view this access to God that we treat it lightly as if we can just approach God on our terms. And yet Scripture says, that it's on His terms that we approach Him. Through Christ, we have access to Him, but not through our own flesh. And so, God is neither unapproachable, nor is He our pal, that we can just approach in our context, in our, in our, uh, just in our flesh, but rather that God makes us uh, acceptable to Himself through Christ. And so, our worship has to be uh, in spirit and truth, that we worship Him for who He is uh, and as He desires, and a- as is appropriate. And so we're going to look at that today because in, at the end of Exodus 20, God is teaching His uh, people about a right worship of Himself. Now this is a precursor to uh, God going into uh, sort of fleshing out the Ten Commandments um, with the, the laws that they're going to live by. So um, the, the Ten Commandments um, here, when we get into chapter 21, chapter 22, we're going to see how God takes the Ten Commandments and, and helps His people to understand what this looks like when they live it out. And so He sets some parameters in there to help give them guidance in how do you live out the Ten Commandments um, in the context that they were in. <clears throat> Here, God is speaking to them about a right worship of Himself. <clears throat> Excuse me. So let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 22. Uh, actually, we'll pick it up in verse 18 and, and read through, and then we'll, we'll start uh, uh, diving in here a little deeper in verse 22. So let me just ask the Lord to direct our steps here as we do so. Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, we ask that Your Spirit would lead us into all truth. 
that you would give us your wisdom, um, that you would give us understanding, Lord, that you would help us to, to even evaluate ourselves in the light of your word. Lord, we ask that you would together help us learn um, how to worship you rightly. God, we ask that you would teach us today to find our hearts in a humble place before you that is able to receive your word and to direct our steps. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Exodus 20, Exodus 20, um, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, uh, I guess just to recap that, and, and the same is true before we get into the Ten Commandments here uh, and at the end of uh, chapter 19, that God makes His presence uh, absolutely clear. Visually, audibly, He makes it very clear He is present uh, among His people. And so when Moses goes to meet God, it, it has been made clear to all of Israel that God is meeting with Moses. And um, so there, it's, it's inescapable. If you're, if you're an Israelite in, at this point in time, it is the fact that God is there and present and, and meeting with His people through Moses, it, that, that understanding is in your face. Verse 22, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. The, the first thing that God points out here is uh, you all have been witness to the fact that I am present with you. I am powerfully present with you. That I am speaking to you. He says, You shall not make God's of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold, um, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you Wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. All right, so what we're going to do here this morning is we're going we're gonna to work at uh, trying to discover what is it that God is, how would the Israelites have uh, been intended to receive this, and then uh, take that in their context and uh, grab those, those timeless principles that God is imparting to his people and apply those to our context in which we live because there are truths here that God is imparting to his people that do apply to us although 
albeit maybe not uh, super directly here, right? Um, we, we're, we don't typically, um, we're not going out and building altars. Uh, there's a different context that we live in, um, but the same Lord of all that we worship. So the first thing that God does here in, in verse 22 is he reminds his people who it is that's present with them. It is Yahweh who is present with Israel. And they have clearly witnessed and even felt his presence. Um, there's the thunder and the cloud and, and just the, the, the incredible power of God on display visually and audibly. I'm sure they can even feel it. Now this is, this is important because what God is wanting them to recall, and He does this actually at the beginning of Exodus 20 before He gives to the people the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He reminds them of who He is and what He's done for them. His faithfulness, that He is the one who came to their rescue. That when they pleaded to him in their slavery, uh, that, that he is the one who heard them. That he is the one who came to them. He is the one who rescued them. And he brought them with a powerful hand out of Egypt. He defeated the Egyptian army, which, which was the force to be reckoned with. Uh, a force which the Israelites in no way could have withstood. And uh, he defeated the Egyptian army. He defeated Pharaoh. And he brought them safely through the Red Sea as on dry land. And he has miraculously provided for them in the desert. This is Yahweh, their Elohim. Yahweh is his name. Elohim is that he is God, the ultimate God. And so they absolutely had every evidence that they would ever need to know that He is present and know that He is the One who has saved them. That He is the One, out of all the, all the little gods that they may hear about, that all, all of the false gods that they may see others worshiping, that He is the One who heard them. That He is the One who has been faithful to them. That He is the One who is powerfully present to save, to rescue, to provide. And it continues to be present with His people and has just now given them His uh, ten laws. So with that groundwork established here, um, and and I would also add to this that they, they are to clearly understand here as God reminds them once again, and God does this quite a few times through Exodus, Remember what I did for you. Remember, I was the one who saved you. Um, that once again, God is not just saying it was me who did that, but he's, there's also this kind of uh, uh, contrast that out of all the other possible gods they could worship, little g there, uh, the false gods, those who are, are not gods at all, um, that, that not only is he the one that heard them and responded to them, but he's the only one that has regard for them. And so on this basis of relationship and faithfulness to his people, his powerful presence, then he says, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. In other words, uh, 
he is uh, making clear here uh, what he has previously said, and that is that you're to have no other gods before me. You're not to fashion anything in my likeness. You're not to fashion anything that with your hands that would become an object of, of worship either as a divine being or as a representation of a divine being. Because uh, idols could be, um, often idols were built not so much as a, um, as a, 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 an object of worship in and of itself, but as a representation of divine presence. Right, so the so the idol would sort of become the object, the the focus of worship because it was the representation of divine presence. And God is is making clear you can't fashion anything that is in my likeness. It is impossible for us to capture who God is by anything our uh, our finite creative abilities can come up with. We can't even comprehend, begin to comprehend who He is. But we only see a piece of who He is. So we are not, and He reiterates this, that they are not to fashion anything as a means of worship. And this is all, again, based on the, the, the testimony of His presence and His faithfulness to them. They're not to give their worship or devotion to, to any other gods or beings. They're not to, to try to come up with something that maybe reminds them of Him. That when we look at this, we just feel like we're close to God. But rather, they are to pursue Him for who He truly is. That He alone is Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When we get to verse 24 here, there's a mention of of an altar. Um, By by the way, I would add to verse 23 that there's the mention of silver and gold, um, things fashioned out of silver and gold, that this is a... God is not limiting the scope here to only things out of silver and gold. This is uh, sort of like uh, implied here is out of anything. But even the most beautiful things, out of the most beautiful materials, you cannot possibly fashion anything worthy of worship. And we, um, you know, even in our modern context, we can have, as human beings, we can have uh, be prone to fashion things that we call beautiful and sort of assign a divine aspect to it. Um, church buildings can be a great example of that, actually, sadly. That, that we, can, we can so adore the structure that, that we're intended to gather for worship of Him, we can so adore it that it becomes the very thing that we're more devoted to than Him and than He Himself. God is the one who is worthy of our worship. So as we get to verse 24 then, it goes a little deeper. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. The altar was the place where Yahweh would meet His people. 
So as we go through the Old Testament, one of the things that we'll find is when God does something um, extraordinary, oftentimes his people will respond by, with thanksgiving and worship, and, and they will build an altar as a way of sort of uh, giving honor to what God has done. So the altar is the place where God meets with his people. Uh, sort of like if, uh, um, if you and I were to meet somewhere, we would establish a place to meet, right? So if we said meet at the coffee shop, and uh, I go to the coffee shop, me alone at the coffee shop is not the same as me and you meeting, right? We would agree to that, right? Uh, we're not having a meeting unless we both are there at the same time interacting, right? The same idea is present with the altar, that an altar in and of itself does not mean that God is present. Uh, this, this building, beautiful as it may be and thankful as we may be for it, is merely a pile of sticks if God is not present. Right? So, unless God is meeting them here at this altar, then it's just a pile of rocks and dirt and whatever else they might use for materials. And so he says here, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. In other words, he's reiterating here the idea that uh, they're not to fashion anything with their own hands. They're not to come up with something that they're going to find beautiful and worthy of worship. God is, is creating boundaries here for them at this point of their walk with Him. Now later, He's going to give them instructions on building more elaborate things that are to be included as part of their worship of Him. But, but here, what He's wanting to set forth is that, that He alone is to be the object of worship. He alone is to have their devotion and attention when it comes to worship. And so He's setting up some parameters that would keep them from building anything that they would begin to see as sort of like, hey, look what we did. This is something to be proud of. Isn't this beautiful? You know, when I stand near it, I just feel like I'm close to God. This, this is what God is wanting to guard against, that they would begin to divert their attention from Him to an object. Which is why He says, in every place where I cause My name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. We, uh, religion is... is uh, it is something that humans are drawn to. We like religion. And what I mean by religion is we like a system and a structure that gives us a means to sort of either check off boxes or make us feel like we're doing something to approach God or to improve ourselves, uh, make ourselves more acceptable to Him. We like something like that. We, we like something that we can just... Uh, sort of easily know that, hey, if I went to church on Sunday or if I gave this uh, or if I did that, that, that I have taken a step in the direction of God without necessarily giving a lot of thought to the, the deeper work, the harder work, I would say, of evaluating ourselves before God, of, uh, of dealing with our own sinfulness before Him, of pleading with Him for forgiveness and repenting of our sins, 
uh, of having our hearts truly devoted and turned towards Him rather than just sort of going through a religious motion. And God does not want His people to establish anything at this point in their relationship with Him where, where they would easily get on a course of just carving out a religion for themselves but rather to preserve a covenant faithfulness and relationship with their almighty God. And so he says there that when, when he causes his name to be remembered, that is when he does something extraordinary in the life of Israel, that when they gathered in thankfulness out of, out of gratitude and faith and reverence for him, and build an altar to commemorate what God has done and recognize that with thankfulness and give praise to Him, He's going to be present with them. It doesn't just say, when you throw together an altar or build me something beautiful, I'll be present. He says, when I do something wonderful for you, when I do something extraordinary for you, when I cause my name to be remembered, and you gather in that place to worship me, to give thanks, to praise me, I'm going to be present with you. As we continue on with the stress of, of worship on relationship with God and who He is, being focused on who He is rather than on the structures or systems, he then says, verse 25, If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. So in the context of building something out of, out of earth, um, he says, he doesn't say uh, don't use rocks, but what he says is uh, if you happen to use rocks to build the altar, uh, don't get fancy with it and think that you're going to improve on what I already put there. Now, again, later, God is going to actually give instructions for building an altar. He's going to give instructions for creating a place of worship. Uh, but here, in this context, God is guarding them against fashioning something that perhaps even they would have, would have learned from, uh, um, from the Egyptians uh, or from other uh, peoples who are worshiping false gods. So in other words, God doesn't want them to be developing their idea of what worship is by looking at all the world around them. Now this is really important. Um, even for us in our modern context, that we don't learn how to worship God by seeing what all these other great religions have to offer us. Or by seeing what other people say about it. But that we learn how to worship God from God Himself. That that is our primary source of learning and growing when it comes to worshiping Him as He truly is. There were a lot, of different, um, a lot of different people groups with a lot of different religions worshiping false gods. And they had a lot of different practices. And one of the things that is stressed throughout Scripture is that He alone is God. And we're not to sort of mix our, our, our worship of Him by sort of doing an a la carte where we go, you know what, I think Buddhism has this to offer to us. And I, and I think Mormonism has this to offer to us. And, and, I, and I think the Jehovah's Witness have this to offer to us. 
And, and we sort of go a la carte and we sort of start picking things off the shelf to add into our cart that we call worship of, of God. But that we are to look to the Scriptures and see what does God actually say about Himself to us? How does He reveal Himself to us? That we know Him by letting himself letting he introduce himself to us through his word and the power of his spirit. This is one of the things that Paul, the Apostle Paul, actually confronted quite a lot in the New Testament because many of the peoples that were receiving the gospel, hearing about Christ who gave himself for them on the cross, who died for their sins so that they would not suffer the wrath of God, but that they would have the hope and the promise of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And as they were hearing this message and responding to it by by following Christ and now wanting to believe in Him, trust Him, follow Him, become a follower of Christ, what they already previously had learned were different ways of worshiping apart from Christ, and they were sort of incorporating some of these practices into their worship of Christ. And so Paul begins to address these, that this is, you know, these things are, are not worthy of him. Um, one of those things, which actually uh, may be something that the Lord is addressing here, is even the idea uh, that, that sexual practice could be involved in any way with worship. Or even, or even be uh, in, listed in the, in the same sentence as our worship and faith in Christ. That Paul confronts, especially with the Corinthians, that, that sexual immorality, that sexual perversion is to have no place in the life of the believer who is serious about trusting in Christ and following Him and worshiping Him. And here as we move on even into verse 26, it says, And you shall not go up the steps of my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. I think there's a couple of things here that uh, the Lord may be addressing with His people. One is that there were pagan forms of worship that would incorporate uh, sexual practices of different types um, as part of a sort of worship. And that God is, God is setting up the parameters here that that has no place in the worship of Yahweh. But there's another dynamic to this uh, to this nakedness that I think the Lord may be addressing too. And that is that when we see nakedness in Scripture, um, often what it is speaking to is it's either an indicator of neediness um, and poverty or sinfulness and shame or both. And the reality is that when we approach God, we are approaching as sinful people. We are sinners. We are not holy like God is holy. And the Scriptures even say that, that God is holy and that sin is not even allowed into His presence. So as His people would approach Him, there needed to be a, a way for them to sort of be able to approach Him. This is why when you get in later, there's, there's parameters set up about who may enter into that holy place. Not just anybody was allowed, and there were certain guidelines around those who were selected to be able to go into that. And even all of them weren't just allowed to go in and out, but there were certain uh, rules and regulations in place that they would do everything they could to make themselves presentable to God. Here in verse 26, when he says that you shall not go up to my, uh, by my steps, 
or by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Um, so we're going to get into some maybe uncomfortable nitty-gritty here for a second. But uh, back in those days, let's just say undergarments weren't a big thing, okay? And um, neither were like long pants and stuff, so it was more like a gown type thing that would be worn. So you get the picture, like you elevate yourself and, you know, you got the idea, right? So there's that aspect of it, which is that when you, when, when you are exposed and you elevate yourself, you're really exposed, right? Here, as sinful people approaching a holy God, they, they were not to just come casually to God, but to recognize that He is holy and they are not. And because nakedness, here in this context, is, is actually even symbolic of our sin and our shame before God, that that has to be considered. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse uh, 6. Just for some backstory here on this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Very beginning of your Bible. So when God created mankind, Adam and Eve, He created them in His likeness, and they were naked, and Scripture says they were unashamed. Like, they were just walking around like no big deal. And I, and I don't mean like they had disregard for their nakedness. I mean, they weren't aware of it. It was not, I mean, it's like the animals out in the wild. They, they don't know they're naked. That's just the way they are, right? It's just what is. And so Adam and Eve were. There was no shame in it. There was no need to cover up. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The moment they knew they were naked was the moment they had the shame of sin. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They, they made an effort all of a sudden to cover their nakedness because their nakedness was a reminder of sin and of shame, that they were exposed and vulnerable to the judgment of God. Uh, we, we have a sort of, um, oftentimes, a response that when, when there's something that we don't like, uh, or that we're afraid of, we, we have a way, even our body langu- language will guard us from that, right? We'll take a step back um, from a person we're uncomfortable with. We'll cross our arms. We, we have a body language that withdraws us from what we perceive as a threat. Adam and Eve knew that they were threatened by a holy God and His judgment when sin entered their lives. They were aware of their shame all of a sudden. Our sin, like Adam and Eve's, needs to be addressed if we're going to approach a holy God. But here's the thing. Adam and Eve's, their sewing together of fig leaves was, was a pitiful attempt to deal with the problem. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. God addressed this in a little bit fuller way. 
And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Man's attempt here to cover his, his and her nakedness was not sufficient. And here we have really the first sacrifice, animal sacrifice to cover mankind's nakedness before God. Again, we're not really talking about physical nakedness as much as we're talking about spiritual nakedness. The fact that their sin was laid bare before God and that that needed to be dealt with and their physical nakedness was just a reminder of that guilt and shame. And God did something about it in verse 21 there of chapter 3 of Genesis. Our spiritual nakedness, our sinfulness before a holy God needs to be dealt with. If we look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 15, we see that God addresses this actually with the church of Laodicea. The believers in Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verse uh, 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, God is not really here saying they need gold or even that they need new clothes. But what He's pointing out is their spiritual poverty and their spiritual nakedness before Him. That what they have called um, a, a worship, what they have, have called devotion to Him is a pitiful excuse of the real thing. A pitiful example of, of what they've really been called to. That, that they have looked around and said, hey, you know what? We've got a nice building here. There's lots of people here. Uh, we're well-liked in the community. We're doing good. We are rich. Um, you know, we're all upstanding people here. And, and God is saying, you, you are so blind to where you truly are that you have not devoted yourself to me. And He counsels them to turn to Himself to have a, a true worship of Him, that He alone is the one who is able to clothe them as they are to be clothed so that their spiritual poverty and nakedness would not be exposed to the holy and righteous God. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Actually, this is from the New American Standard. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now we get onto something that is, is, is so important for us to grasp. Remember in, in Genesis where God uh, says, hey, I, I see that you guys try to take some fig leaves and make something to cover up. Uh, that, that is not going to do. And God gives them something new out of animal skins to cover themselves with. Uh, this is in likeness to that. That we are unable to make ourselves acceptable to God by dealing with our sin on our own. There is not enough things that we can do to cover up or deal with our sin. But God has given us 
new clothes to cover up that which is unacceptable to Him. That is, that when we have been baptized into Christ, when we have come to Christ by faith and received the gift of salvation that only comes through Him, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So when Revelation talks about Laodicea, that they're to go to God for clothes, it's the clothing of the righteousness of Christ, the presence of Christ, the, 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 the purity of Christ. Because it is only in Christ that we are acceptable to our Father in heaven. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 13. This is from the New Living Translation. Uh, the reason that I did not use the ESV, by the way, is uh, rather than clothe, it just says put on. And uh, I, I really um, appreciate that the New Living and the, the New American Standard actually help us to understand what put on actually means. It's like the idea that just like you would slide into a jacket or a coat, that, that it, there's something active there that we're doing um, with God. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. The, the way to avoid walking in sin is to clothe ourselves with the presence and the righteousness of Christ in our life. So there are two aspects to this. One is uh, that we, first of all, come to the cross as needy and naked sinners. We are spiritually poor. We are spiritually naked before a holy and righteous God. Our sin is laid bare before Him. There's nothing we can do to cover it up or hide it. It lays fully exposed to Him. And it will be judged in fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse, four, uh, verse uh, 13, it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Every sin will be accounted for. And our best effort, we can hide stuff from one another. Um, we can even hide stuff from our closest friends and family members. But we can hide nothing from God. There is nothing that will remain hidden from God. And every bit of it will be held account. So we can ignore it or we can deal with it. We can either deal with it now by coming naked and poor to the cross of Christ and asking for His forgiveness and asking Him to come and, and purify us and to, to make us acceptable to, to make us born anew as he talks to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Or we can try to pretend that it doesn't exist and then we get to the end of our days and comes our death and then Hebrews says the very next thing that comes after our death is the judgment. It, our sin will be held accounted, accountable either at the cross or upon our death when we suffer the wrath of God. Hebrews chapter 4, when we continue on there from verse 13, uh, it says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That is, everything that you have gone through, Jesus Christ has gone through and then some. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He has walked in your shoes and then some. He is well acquainted with every temptation that you have, that you have faced. He is well acquainted. Uh, well-educated on uh, uh, through experience of life's sorrows and difficulties. And yet, he was without sin. Verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we come to the cross, recognize our, recognizing our spiritual poverty, recognize, recognizing our spiritual nakedness, when we come to the cross, Humble in that way, we can come with confidence knowing that we're going to be received by a gracious Savior. And what he gives us is, I think of the, uh, there was a man that that Jesus and the disciples encountered who was uh, filled with demonic spirits and he was running around naked and just crazy and out of control. And, um, and when he met Jesus, he was set free from that demonic oppression. And they dealt with his nakedness. Now, I'm not here to say that the most important thing ever is that you're, you're fully clothed. But it was a symbol that Christ met him where he was. And Christ gave him new life. And the fact that he was clothed now was a representation that He's no longer trapped in this slavery that he was in before of demonic oppression, uh, but now has been given a new life. And the physical clothing that he was given was just a sort of a physical reminder also that he has now been received by Christ. We are to put on the clothing of Christ to come to him with humility And he clothes us in his righteousness before our holy God. And so as we look at Exodus chapter 20, God's call to them to not approach the altar in a way where their nakedness is exposed is a reminder that they are sinful people approaching a holy God. And so to keep worship uncorrupted, they were to take an extra measure of guarding their nakedness. Now there are five things I want to leave you with here in terms of things we can do to help keep our worship of Him uncorrupted. One, and these are all things that we can trace through these, these verses in Exodus 20. First one is, remember what God did to save you. Just as to His people, He says that uh, um, you have seen for yourselves and I have talked with you from heaven. You've, you've borne witness to, to God's presence here. And then early on in chapter 20, he says, I'm the Lord, I'm Yahweh who saved you out of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. That we remember what God did to save us. John chapter 3, verse 16 reminds us that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that those who would receive Him, believe in Him, would have eternal life. Uh, Romans chapter 5 reminds us that it was while we were still sinners that Christ came and died for us. 
This is what God has done for us. He came from heaven to earth to pay for the full measure of his wrath against our sin, which was deserving of his wrath, and yet it all was rested upon his son Jesus Christ, that those who would believe in Christ, Christ would, would bear their ju- God's judgment against their sin. Remember what God did to save you. I think this is a a foundation to a right worship of God so that we are able to approach Him with a thankful heart and praise. When we don't think we really need much forgiving, we're not going to approach Him uh, as the one who saved us, but more maybe the one who helped us out. We have no salvation apart from Christ and the work that He did on the cross. Second thing is this. Don't let anything compete with your devotion, love, faith, and reverence for Jesus Christ. Uh, Whether it be uh, your ambitions in this world, other people, um, whatever it is, your your job, uh, it could even be religion. Right? And, And listen, We all know many churches have died because they took their eye off the ball, they took their eye off of the God who saved them and put it on whatever, their organization, their programs, uh, their their building, uh, whatever it was, that churches have lost their love for Him and He has extinguished the flicker of flame that they had in this world to represent Him. Don't let anything compete with your devotion, love, faith, and reverence for Jesus Christ. Third thing, let God's Word and His Spirit teach you how to worship. In other words, don't take your cues about what true worship is from the world around you. Take your cues about what real worship is from God's Word and from the guidance of the Holy Spirit as you work your way through His Word. And you see the type of faith and reverence and gratitude that people come to Him with. Number four, keep sexual sins far from you. I remember, I, uh, well, Adam and Eve. When they sinned, they went to hide from God. When we allow sexual sin to take root in our lives, uh, re- really any sin habit, but especially sexual sin because it, is, it is, uh, can be such an embarrassing thing, right? It's a thing we, we especially want to work to keep hidden. When we, when we maintain some sexual sin in our life, it is going to make us hide from God or at least make a good effort at it. In other words, we are not going to bring ourselves wholly to Him in worship. But we're going to be guarding, trying to hide things um, from God, and it doesn't work. Sexual sin keeps us, when we allow that to exist in our lives, now, I'm not talking about um, dealing with temptation here. We, we all deal with various temptations. What I'm talking about is when you allow a, 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 a sexual sin habit to take root in your life and you don't deal with it, you don't repent of it, you don't confess it and turn away from it, it, it gets a taproot going in your life that will go deeper and deeper the longer it stays and be harder to pull out. And it will begin to destroy everything in your life, beginning with your relationship with God. Fifth thing is this, 
clothe yourself with the righteousness and the presence of Christ. I would say one of the, a couple of the things that we can do as daily habits to help ourselves be clothed with the righteousness and the presence of Christ is one, that we initially, that we come to the cross by faith and say, God, I need your righteousness. I know I'm not acceptable to you. Please forgive me of my sins and come into my life and make me new. That's when he clothes us with, with his righteousness. But then we can walk clothed in his presence when we daily then make a habit of meeting with him and pursuing him. We can do that through uh, daily times in the word, through uh, time sitting before him, just even w- w- making a purposeful habit of pursuing him through prayer, through his word, um, and through doing good on his behalf. But these are habits that we can purposefully incorporate into our life to help us walk in him. I am uh, so thankful just to have a church who, who takes Christ seriously and our devotion to him seriously, who wants to, who wants to pursue him above all things. That's one of the things that I have just been so thankful for, that as we've encountered various issues through, uh, at least in the last 11 years that I've been here, that as we've encountered various issues, uh, that, that the one thing that just keeps pulling us through together in unity is our desire to please him, glorify him, and, and preach the word of God that people would find forgiveness and, and uh, salvation at the cross. Right? We've had lots of opportunities, and Satan has, has, has even tried to dig in a little bit and see if he can wiggle in here and create divisions among us. But the one thing that binds us together and has helped to preserve the message of the cross and our testimony in the community has been that, that up to this point, our highest aim has been to have God be glorified and to have Christ be known. And so long as we keep working hard and at keeping that our primary focus, we're going to make it through a lot of tough stuff. Tough stuff that we're going to face. I mean, this, listen, this whole, um, whatever, whatever you, wherever you're at on it, I don't really care. It's not my intent here. But, but the, the COVID and vaccination and all that stuff, another opportunity where Satan is desiring to sneak in here and start going, okay, you're on this side, you're on this side, and create divisions within the body of Christ. That's his desire. So the question to us is going to be, are we going to rally around the cross and continue to hold high the cross and make that our primary focus through things like that and other things that we're going to face in the days to come? And I'm convinced that as we do that, we will help to guard our worship from being corrupted and tainted and it will draw us together in unity. If you've not given yourself to Christ, He has offered you forgiveness of sin at the cross. That your spiritual poverty before Him, your spiritual nakedness, that it, He would give you a new set of clothes. In other words, He forgives you of your sins and He gives you a new life and teaches you a new way to live, glorifying to God, near to God. And He all who call on him will be saved. It's what his word says. And for the rest of us to make a daily pursuit of walking with him, walking in step with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you 
have done on the cross to give yourself for us. We know that we don't deserve it. We, we are all well aware that we are sinners. We see it when we look in the mirror. We're reminded of our bad choices. We're reminded of the evil intents of our heart. Those times in our life where we have turned away from you. And yet, Lord, it's while we were in those sins that you gave your life for ours. And while we were still sinners, you died for us. And we thank you that you have paid for all of our sins to cross. I pray for those who, Lord, have yet to trust you, who have yet to call out to you to save them from their sins. I pray that you would help them to take hold of that gift that you've offered to them. And for those of us who have, that you would teach us, continue to teach us how to walk in that. Lord, that as your church, that we would hold, hold on to the cross with the tenacity. Lord, with thankful hearts, that, that God, that there would be nothing we treasure more than you. And that that would bind us together as your people. And that it would strengthen our testimony in the community. That it would, that it would uh, expand our reach in terms of, Lord, letting sinners find hope at the cross. Just as you did for us. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just so we're clear, the thing that makes you acceptable to God is not all the steps you take to get there, but it's Christ. In fact, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have come to the cross in faith and repentance to take hold of the gift that Christ has offered to you, you have become acceptable to God, meaning you have been given the right to be part of his family and to be part of his kingdom. And so you may approach the throne of grace with confidence, as the scriptures say, based on the Christ and the work that he did on the cross, not based on anything you can offer to the equation. That should give you some freedom. That should get, cause your heart to be full of thanksgiving towards Him. To have a real cause of praise that Ephesians says that it's not anything that we did out of our own, any works that we did, that we would be tempted to boast about it, but it was the free gift of God given to us. So the Lord bless and keep you as you treasure that gift that God has given you and you seek to walk in a way that keeps in step with Him and honors Him.